Richard West, finding out about film and improvisation. Welcome to episode five of the Impro Film Club podcast. In this episode, I've been talking to Andrew Cotting. Andrew Cotting is an experimental filmmaker. He often records sound and pictures separately. He uses different kinds of format of film. Uh, His films take all different kinds. He's sort of unclassifiable. Uh, He has made travel films, uh, things that you might call documentary, things that you might call uh, full-blown feature fiction films. He thinks of his actors and the technicians that work with him as collaborators. So we talk about a number of his different films, but we started by talking about the first film I saw, which is a short film from 1993 called Smart Alec. That was, I guess, the first script I've ever written. And I wrote that with Sean Locke, stand-up comedian, an amazing writer who also worked with me on This Filthy Earth. We were very structured in the writing. Because it was a short film, it was quite easy, 20 minutes long, uh, beginning, middle and end. I was drawing very much on my own autobiography. We used to go on holiday with my my parents. It was very fractious. There's lots of violence that was meted out normally... um, towards my mum from my dad but in that film we kind of we turned the violence and it was it was more verbal violence and the, the father ultimately kicks the adolescent son out of the car so that we, we kind of knew roughly the, there was a beginning middle and end and because I was determined not to always be working with sync sound which is another element of kind of you, one can improvise so much more easily if the cameras aren't necessarily running at 24 25 frames per second so everybody on set kind of knows that you're catching images that that kind of fidelity or that that fascism of the normal kind of sound sync immediately you you know that you're not working with that it means that you're capturing extra dialogue or you're capturing extra images so you're then beginning to as I would would with the documentaries you sculpt you can rearrange reposition uh, look for new kind of alchemy within the edit suite and with Smart Alec that's exactly what we were doing and and I think because Sean's performance is also it's kind of comical and and yet really dark it's a black it's a violent piece of work without you never really see any violence but I think the atmosphere and the atmosphere of Smart Alec is was a, was a template, and I I I also f- I found the work so much more disturbing. When we wrote it, it should have just been a black comedy, and it was full of a lot more laughs. And the improvisational elements uh, in in that film also added to it. So there were things that were going on which weren't really scripted that I had managed to capture with this uh, with you know with the Super 8 camera in particular. Did you know what you were doing when you started? No, <laughs> <laughs> ever. And to this day, probably not either. Did you know even less then than you would if you... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I was kind of lucky because I, I worked with a producer that also didn't really know what he was doing that went on to produce uh, Galavan. I was, I'd like to go back to that moment. If you When you were on set at the beginning of Smart Alec and you've got all these people who are standing around yeah. for the most part waiting for you to tell them what to do, yeah. do you remember the situation and the first decisions you had to make about, okay, so where is the camera going to go? What am I telling people to do? Yeah, I think I... So how did you do it? Well, one of the first things I did is the house that we see in Smart Alec at the beginning was my uh, mum's brother's house. So there was no kind of sense of, it, it was a set, and we were in and out having a laugh, cups of tea. So immediately the atmosphere wasn't full, and we weren't putting a lot of lights. One of the decisions I made is that I didn't want it to be overlit. 
and I worked with Nick Gordon-Smith, who I continue to work with, and he, he, he kind of cut his teeth at the London Filmmakers Co-op. So the atmosphere there was more experimental. So the guy who was doing the sound hadn't really done a lot of sound. There were the, the, the woman with the dog who was playing the part of my grandmother with the, 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 the terrier that we were talking She was a non-actor. You know, she was an old singer. She was an old vaudeville singer. Sean really was the only actor. And even he was a stand-up comedian. He was just cutting his teeth. So the atmosphere on that set, apart from maybe the, the guy playing the dad who'd done a bit of acting, but not a lot. He'd been in EastEnders or something. was really informal. And uh, I, all I remember is that first shot, which I use later on in the film, is I put it on the, a camera on the tripod and I wanted things to happen within the frame. And that might have, I think at the time, it was really inspired by Parajanov, uh, Colour of Pomegranates, where the camera never moves and there were these little tableaus, things that happen within the frame. And so when she sat, the grandmother sat there and the dog's there and there's, and, and, and I was shooting that single frame. So both Super 8 and 16 mil. Immediately, it was a technique and everybody was just enjoying that as a performance. So, and I, and I, my direction to them, if you're using single frame with that stop motion, they all had to move very, very slowly. So we were there for maybe for an hour and a half, just a Nick was doing, you know, we didn't have an intervalometer. So he was just going click, click. And Gary Parker, who was doing the Super 8, was going click. So the whole setup, and I had the, the Super 8 camera was like the B camera with covering angles for inserts if I needed it. So it was fun. It was really funny. We had that opening sequence and then we all knocked off for a bit of lunch. And people think, fuck, this is, this is great if, if this is the kind of film we're making. And then we, I remember getting the low loader. And that was the kind of the biggest nod towards any kind of action props. And that's the only bit of the production which is a little bit more fraught because the, the guys that we were hiring the low loader from, see, and within kind of 10 minutes, he said, well, excuse me, what you can't do, I don't want you walking on the low loader. If you're fixing uh, limpet, my blood, you've got to do this, any other, I'm not going to have any mics, you can't rip the uh, vinyl inside, you can't do this, you can't do it. And it was a list of things you couldn't do. And, help, and if you're working on board the low loader, everybody needs to have a harness, they need to be rigged to it with a hard hat, and, and off we went. But within about five, 10 minutes, we started fucking about. And there's one sequence where the camera, Super 8, is kind of, we're just walking around the car on the low loader. No harnesses, no hard hats. And we start pushing the camera through the car. So we're doing these kind of weird, nowadays, you'd probably create those shots like through a drone. But it was all handheld and there were no steady cams or anything. So we were really kind of investigating the possibilities of filming this family going on holiday on a low loader whilst being going along a dual carriage at 40 miles an hour but just having that freedom and there was something about i, I think the you know the, the driver of the low loader he just kept looking in the window saying, what the fuck are they doing <laughs> and uh and, and again i think he didn't take it so seriously because we had super eight cameras and he imagined that we would have sound sync there'd be boom operators there would be focus pullers but it wasn't it was just a couple of blokes art students mucking about in a low loader so yeah and, and all of that shoot i mean we ended up with I think it was about a 10-day shoot, and we had such a laugh. But you, in that film, you do have a, a very concise plot. Was, was dialogue being made up, or how did, you keep a, how did you keep the timetable right, and how did you know that you were getting what you needed to get, and all this kind of thing? I didn't. It was done, really, I trust. And I trusted Nick Gordon-Smith to, to shoot beautiful stuff, which he did. Uh, and I trusted uh, the Kodak labs in Germany to send back my Super 8 cartridges two weeks later with something on them. But, and, I, and I think because Sean was a lot more um, pedantic about making sure that this script that we'd written, and he in particular, had provided this, this great dark dialogue, funny dialogue. So he, he was more mindful of, 
of that. We didn't have a, a first, second, third AD at all. But I kind of, it was a blur. And at the end of each day's shooting, I thought, well, I was, I've got more than enough footage here. You know, I was so used to ratio of one to one. Whatever I shot, I used. Mm. So we were more than covered. I remember thinking, well, we've got about two hours worth of footage. Of course I can make a 20 minute film. So that never really concerned me. So we had to go back for one reshoot, which is where I then ended up slowing down the Super 8. They're in that kind of cafe on the side of the road. And, and then that was improvised as well, completely improvised uh, in the studio. And the row at the beginning, which to me was just fantastic, was the mother and the father are rowing about going on holiday with the grandmother. And we sat in a chalet down in uh, Pevensey uh, Bay in the caravan site. Bill Monk and Penny Prosser. I'm amazed I can remember their names after all those years. <laughs> Haven't really had any contact since. I said, I want you to, Im I, you're, you're a couple, you're taking kids on holiday, and the grand, the mother's going, your mother-in-law's going, and you're fractious. And I, I just set them a game. It was a game just to play around with, give me versions of that row. <laughs> now i'm I'm remembering this from like 20 25 years ago or how long it goes um but as i recall it you see the outside of the house and you hear the row inside yes. the house well at the beginning you follow the kid yeah and you're following the kid you, you don't know who he is but you're hearing this row yeah then you cut to the house and the door opens and the mother comes out but that opening three four minutes was all improvised you know we'd written a row but it just was so less dramatic uh, and powerful, potent than, than what they delivered. So how did you know that you were going to be able to use the audio in that? Did you did you immediately think, okay, this is what we're gonna hear when we see the house? Yeah, it started happening in the edit suite. I, I, I'm always listening to sound. I'm always very, very um, aware of sound and the potential of sound and the way in which sound, as you said at the beginning, it's, it kind of it creates a disconnect but then when it's connected, when sometimes, like as in Smart Alec, there are sequences that are in sync, it kind of draws you into the film in a slightly different way. And then you, 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 you kind of drift and then you're back in, you're connecting through the, through the power of the dialogue or the, you know, the, 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 the narrative. Uh, and so the audience are, are kind of, not lost, but experiencing something which isn't conventional. I don't know, in answer to your question, I don't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And I still don't really know what I'm doing, but I do know when it works. And what about uh, as far as you're trying to use the actors as an instrument to, to deliver the thing that you're after? How, how did you learn about that process in the when you were doing Smart Alec, for example? Because by that stage, you kind of had that much experience of... I hadn't really had any... Smart Alec was the first thing I'd, I'd ever had with a conventional script. It, there was a script which was formatted in a conventional way. So I, I had had no experience at all. What was it like telling people what to do? Fun, yeah. Because I, I never, and I'm still very self-conscious, I, I would never describe myself as a director. There's some brilliant directors out there, of which I'm not one. Yeah, I'm a filmmaker and I, I work with uh, actors who are given the freedom to improvise, 
collaborate you know collaborate of course is a very uh, dodgy word you know and I just now when you were saying you know how do you get them to do what you want them to do you know that can sound like a very negative fascistic way of going about things and it can be all of those things but it can be fun and actors can can jump in with enthusiasm because they have that freedom some some crack under that responsibility and you do see it in them uh, they become incredibly self-conscious they don't want to improvise they would rather learn the lines and maybe stray from the path a little bit but when you give them the com complete and utter freedom to improvise around the theme that connects to the project some can do it and some can't but normally by the time i get to set and you know my only i guess three four examples of smart alec lubba this filthy earth and um ivor we i've had auditions so you meet people and um in this filthy earth you know all of the lead actors I, I cast them mainly because i like them as human beings and they obviously they had something about them something about them um tickled my fancy maybe say something about this filthy earth it's uh, it's sort of set in yorkshire and it's uh it's although it's set in the an approximation to the present day there's a tractor in it it has the feeling of the 19th century so in the film you're focused on two sisters and the the story is about what happens when one of them gets married to another bloke who lives nearby. So I was wondering how much you had a sort of a, a toolbox for how you were going to approach it uh, based on the experience of what you'd done up to that. Did you know more what you were going to do? No. And it really felt like the first proper film I'd ever made. And there was a lot of pressure. Film 4 put money into it. There's a lot of money on it. The budget was about a million. The idea of having a million... I mean, luckily... Um, I was kind of protected by you know, Ben Wolford again, the guy that did Gallivant Smart Alley. I never really knew what the full budget was. Uh, and there was these, all these debates around match funding. So ultimately, we got a loss of money that came at the very end. But I, I, I built a village in Yorkshire with, a, um, with set builders. Again, people that I've stayed in touch with, uh, friends. They became very close friends. And, and I applied a, a similar kind of technique, if you want to call it that. But... We went up to Yorkshire, uh, we spent six weeks shooting it. Uh, we had kind of two weeks prep, of which uh, four or five days were improvising in the landscape. So all the, act the key actors and actresses knew, knew their houses or knew that landscape. Rebecca Palmer, who plays the lead in particular, she, she completely immersed herself uh, in that landscape, as did uh, Shane Atwal, who plays the part of Buto, the kind of macho alpha male that completely annihilates this wonderful dynamic between two sisters i was mindful of the fact that i had a big crew i did have a first second third ad there was a lot of pressure on me coming in from um, the funders but luck at, i worked with a man called chris collins who eventually went on to work at the film council and he kind of took control of it you know he was very fastidious very pedantic we had a, it, it, in times it was fraught but he without chris that film would never have happened and he came from the industry he understood the industry he aspired to the industry and I think Chris was vital in, 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 in enabling me to make an Andrew Cotting film, to make a smart aleck in Yorkshire with a massive budget, well, for me, a massive budget, and to be prepared. So there was so, you know, the, the market sequence there was completely improvised. I, there were two key scenes with the, the, the goose being bought and sold and the head butting uh, in, in, in the bar. But we built a market. And all of the people you see in that market were extras. And I went up there, I went into the market. I, I, it was just fantastic. It was like a, an eight-hour performance. This is different. It's a different setup. Obviously, you've got a lot more people. 
but you've got things like uh, set designers and costume designers and um, so how do you how do you incorporate that openness to chance with a costume designer well you have less you, you have control in the sense that a lot of those costumes were bought by me in junk shops with my wife who's always in and out of charity shops and junk shops so most of the key costumes and the suits that we had they weren't prop hire you know a few of them were but they were real costumes that the characters could live and die in and the Jesus Christ character for instance this is a, a nice story Peter Hugo Daly was his name he, he lived and died in that costume his hair became more and more matted he never washed he, you know he was only on set for four or five days but he never wanted to go back to London he, he, he was on set all the time in costume, never got out of costume even the evenings in the pubs because he, he just, and I, I'd given the freedom, him the freedom to improvise. So, so many different things. <laughs> so, it suggests so many different things. So, I mean, I, I, maybe I'll ask you the, the same question I was asking you about Smart Alec. If you're, you're shooting one scene in the film, like the scene in which um, there's a negotiation about buying a goose, and you've got two of the principal characters and they're sort of, uh, in fact, three of the principal characters are involved in this mm. negotiation mm. and it says something about each of them. Did we say 50? Now I want 100. Ah! Oh, a bit dopey, isn't it? It's not worth 80. I want 100 for it. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll give you 60 for it. I'll take it for 70. I haven't got all day. Francine, I ain't finished yet. All right. Yeah. Next time I see him, I'll punch his face in. Strutting around like a bloated cock. He drives hard, bargain. <laughs> what are you actually doing in that scene? Are you sort of standing next to the actors? Are you talking to them? How, have you instructed the camera as to how they're going to frame it? Well, that's a good example because that, that's, you know, as I said earlier, in the market sequence, that's the only one, as well as the, the scene in the bar, that needed to be choreographed. And, of course, the actors know, need to know where to stand. And because we were shooting on film, you know, now if I was to shoot that scene, I'd just have two HD cameras running and they'd be handheld and I'd be covering and it would be, it'd be a lot easier. Uh, but because there's budget and there's this focus pulling that to field and that kind of stuff, um, I, yeah, I, I instructed Nick to do whatever I instructed the actors to do. The only person that had no idea really what was going on was the animal wrangler. The, and and she, she was really, and we'd kind of fallen in love. She'd been up there, she did all the animals for the whole of This Filthy Earth. And I, and she was, I knew she, she quite liked to be in the film. I said, will you be the goose seller? And uh, she's very self-conscious and there's a lovely kind of look to camera which breaks the smell, uh, the, the spell and the smell. So, you know, I just said to her, don't, just ignore the cameras. And then the three main actors, and all actors, they had eight lines of dialogue. And they delivered them, and then I tried it at a different angle. Uh, Nick was using a kind of bit of a zoom lens there, so he could, he was finding focus and frame, uh, which made it very, cutting really nicely with the kind of authenticity and freewheeling, slightly more kind of documentary aspects, the energy of the market. But that scene was very easy. And in fact, if anything, because we'd been running cameras all day, it felt quite nice for everybody to stop and, and, and just capture this, this little bit of dialogue. Well, I suppose the, the, the question about improvisation in uh, drama filmmaking is that the, it's normally such a laborious process in which you know, 20 things need to be put in place. Yeah. You've got to have enough looseness to allow people to do what they want, yeah. but you've also got to know what you're going to get. You need a st- well, I think you need a structure. You can still not know what you're going to get, but there's a very good chance you're going to get something. If you're working with good actors, actresses, and, and good DOPs, 
you're always going to get some. The, the one thing that I guess I've always been, I, do, I don't want to get, is something that's familiar. Something that I feel somehow belongs to a whole trope of other films. You know, the mid shot, the wide shot, the close up, the reverse angle. It's that's. It's, it's always felt very self-conscious. When it, I mean, it can, it's brilliant. You know, this 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 kind of classical directors. You know, Hitchcock can do that brilliantly. There are so many directors that can do that. But I, I don't know. It's I, I kind of want my work to feel as if it's somehow on that thin membrane between experiment and formality, between you know performance and and and, and structured. And and it, it's it it kind of meanders through that or along that very thin membrane between. It's like inventing a reality. It's you know, um... but that structure is there because people want to have coverage. They want to connect all the shots mm. up. They want to make sure that. Mm. And are you self-consciously saying, no, "I'm not going to allow that to constrain the way I'm telling the story"? Well, I'm not. I'm not wantonly um, against it or trying to destroy it because I know that the reason that that system is there, it works. You know, you put the right ingredients into cake. You put it in the oven. You, you're going to get a, a proper cake out of the oven. And, and so, you know, the ingredients that I put into that cake making, for want of a better metaphor, at the end, I, might, I quite like the idea of, you know, maybe underbaking it or putting in something that doesn't belong in there. And then, and when you pull it out, you think, oh, but then when you pull it out, you can always rearrange it. You think, oh, well, it's a bit soggy in the middle. Let's cut the middle out and then put that at the beginning. And then we'll start thinking about how the sound might inform it. And, okay, you know, I, the performance hasn't delivered that kind of, that drama or that horror that uh, we wanted in terms of the the, the, you know, the conventional uh, two shot. So we'll, we'll fly that in over the top of a landscape. So we, by the time we meet these characters, we know that there's drama, there's friction, something has happened between these two characters. Mm. So the actors are providing me with, we kind of found footage that by definition already belongs to the project because they're wearing the costumes that I've selected and they're in the landscapes I've chosen and the buildings that we've designed and um, ultimately uh, performing to the sound effects and the music that I also want to be there. So it's... Um, what are the things that you're going after there? You know, how important is the story in doing that? Is it, does it, is it, is it kind of a functional thing? To, to use the, this filthy earth as an example, I remember when Sean came out of the kind of locked off screening he put his hand in his uh, head in his hands and went, what the fuck have you done? Because he had crafted that story. We had spent over a year working on that script, uh, of which, you know, I'd say 90, 95% was, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of the narrative structure, was him. My, my, my kind of contribution was more about atmosphere and thinking about the organising of, of, of the different sequences and the scenes and, and, and so on and so forth. And and I feel that there's um I, I need I would have needed to have been more respectful to his input as a writer at that stage, but couldn't help myself. Do you know where it's going to end? Not always, no. Quite often it, there'll be there'll be something I see. It might be from you know scene twenty eight, and there might be two hundred scenes in the. But something happens in scene twenty eight, and I just think that would make a brilliant ending to the film. So you can then put that at the end of your timeline if you're working digitally. And then make it fit somehow, whether it be a sonic device, whether it be the way in which you rearrange the scenes to get to that. And it can, you know, those unexpected endings can be really exhilarating. Yeah. So in general, I don't know where it ends. Is there um, an equivalent to what you do on set when you're in your shed here um, at the editing? Is there a kind of editing equivalent to directing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost the same, one and the same. 
So I'm improvising with the materials that I've got, whereas when I'm in the field, I'm gleaning, you know, those moments and capturing them on sound and image, you know, however. And then bringing them into here is that that's when the collaging begins. That's when it's quite exciting because I can't wait to get going. You know, it's you need stamina. So um, archive is something maybe I should because in, in a way that's a form of kind of improvising. You're I'm responding to material which I always get from now from Screen Archive Southeast down in Brighton. They have a library. People bequeath it when they die or families do. I go down there two, three times a year, depending on what projects I'm working on. I just trawl through any stuff. I don't put in keywords like you would if you were working with a uh, researcher. You know, we'll tend to go to Getty or the BFI and you get the stock, same old stock footage. Down there, you don't know what you're going to find. For instance, in the last uh, piece of work, Edith walks purely by happenstance. So you're looking for one thing, but you find another thing, but you don't know where that other thing belongs, but it's it's logged. And quite often now, digitally, I can walk away with it on, on uh, you know, it's on a key. And I put it, and I know that at some point I might use it. It goes onto a hard drive. And, and ultimately, I knew that, you know, without that, Edith walks would never have happened. I wouldn't, it wouldn't have made sense to try and make a film without that footage so in Edith Walks you have uh, you have a journey about the about the death of Harold at yep. the Battle of Hastings um, and you mix in this recreation by school children that was done in 1966 1966 all shot on 8mm yep. by school teachers standard 8, yeah, standard eight right yep. all, with, by school teachers three school teachers with the kids from yep. Sussex just along the coast and it adds a particular poignancy of the sort of children acting out the death of the exactly. Anglo-Saxon yeah. soldiers. Yeah. So in, in Edith Walks, you've got a, uh, there's a group of you go on, on a sort of a pilgrimage from, where is it? Uh, Waltham Abbey. Waltham Abbey yes. to, to here. So how much uh, had there been mapped out beforehand? Of, was there a script of no, some kind? Nothing at all. Right. All we knew is that we had, we thought we could walk, uh, it was 110 miles, 108 miles in five days. We talked 20 miles a day. We knew that's what we wanted to do. Uh, we all arrived at King Harold's tomb in Waltham Abbey, uh, probably about midday. And we thought, here we go. Let's see how we get on. Sorry. Anyways, she supposedly, according to one academic, was um, the visionary who then funded the shrine. The shrine. We're all in costume, you know, because Claudia wanted to dress as Edith Swanwick. She'd found that costume on uh, online. Uh, anyway, there seemed to be a Dadaist, absurdist logic to it all. And then off you go, and then that's how the, it unfolded. But we had no idea really what we were filming each day. I mean, Ian had plenty to say. Claudia was singing songs. David was bowing uh, the bicycle spokes, or drumming street furniture. It was a jolly, and it was only ever meant to be a backdrop for a performance. So we were commissioned to make a one-off performance. The film at that point wasn't even in my head. It was just visuals for a performance. One of the particularly delightful moments is uh, when you are in a park and you're talking to two policemen. <laughs> There's a policewoman and a police. Yeah, yeah. And they, they're sort of... They oh, you can't off. drum in here, sir. No, it's illegal. Come on, come on. No, you're going to have to stop. Don't play musical instruments in there. Oh, 180. Are you allowed to sing? Are you allowed to sing? Oh, man, OK. I'm surprised you could hear that. I know. We turned it right down. It's on a lower set. No, no, no. 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 No
can ask where now. Why? How? She will. She's more curious. I am. Yeah, I want to know. We're, we're walking from Waltham Abbey, which is where some of King Harold's body parts are buried. All right. To St. Leonard's on Sea. It's going to take about four days. It's our second day. So, but that's that in a way goes back to Gallivant. It's the exactly that moment of serendipity providing stuff. Oh, you go out there, it's going to happen. It's rare, it's never not happened. You know, you start, I knew immediately as soon as they came out at the, the excuse me, you can't do that. That this could be this could work for the, for the film for the project. And luckily, we did just about going to record it reasonably well I mean I, they, I, I don't think they would have seen the film I have no idea they're in the film I haven't got their permission to use their footage in the film yes if, I'll leave your number <laughs> yeah please yeah please do at the end of this broadcast yeah I think uh, there's something that I've, I suppose I wanted to get to find is, uh, is uh, everyone's version of what improvisation is mm. well I think there's sometimes there's a slightly preconceived and very um, cliched notion of what improvisation is and I always connect that with this this uh, when I was at the London filmmakers co-op working with Nick Gordon Smith way back in the kind of uh, early 80s we used to share a building with the London Musicians Collective and they've prided themselves on um, improv music jazz improvisation and that was anathema to me it, it, and, and it, at the time it was very male dominated there were very few women that were, were kind of allowed to play instruments really uh, and it was just a uh, an extreme version of you know, male ego showing off. Look how good I am at my instrument. And I think in in a, in a way there's something about improvisation when when I'm when I'm encouraging actors, actresses, people that I'm collaborating with in general to improvise. It, it's it's more about um, encouraging them to be curious, encouraging them to be free of anything preconceived ideas of what it is that they should or could be doing. And that can be infuriating sometimes, you know, with uh, Gary Parker when he we were making Gallivant. He, you know, he I'd give him a Super 8 camera and he'd wandered off sometimes for two hours. I had no idea what he was going to come back with. He was just improvising, playing with the camera. But I wanted him to do that. I'm kind of digressing a bit, but there, there are different uh, sort of schools of improvisation in music or in yeah, acting, right. comedy, yeah. uh, and each of them have a sort of a, a sort of a skill set or there's a tradition of of what that what it is they're doing. I mean, do you are you aware of a kind of um, people being an accomplished improviser of one sort or another? I, I would be very um, very wary of them. Why, why would you be wary of them? Because sometimes it's almost as if the improv... It's, it's a paradox, but they're so good at improvising that it feels rehearsed. It starts feeling as if they've done it all before and therefore it's not improvising. It's just reverting to, to type. And that's what you do when you improvise. But what is it that you... When you meet policemen in a park, what is it that makes that encounter work? Humour. And the absurd. And I tend to present it as somebody that's keen on the absurd and therefore straight where you 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 kind of dispel any sense of self-consciousness you know if i if i'm the um if i'm an idiot then you 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 most people are willing to talk to an idiot that's kind of keen to have a bit of a laugh quite often you know you sense straight away if it's like they've clutched you and they've gone there's no point in in pushing so you said you'd had a bit of experience of being directed by other other people but uh, you didn't you didn't seem that keen on the process yeah, I, I, is it that lack of control? You know, the fact that I'm then not in control of what happens with the material afterwards. It might be an ego thing. I think it's more because I think people see more potential in me than I than than I've really got. 
and I, I don't have the capacity, the wherewithal, or the desire to learn lines. Maybe, maybe the question is, what's the difference between being a performer and being an actor? For uh, you, for you, skill. I, I can, I have skills as a performer, but I don't have skills as an actor. I think being an actor, you know, some people have the ability to act, and some people don't. It's, it's a very, very specialised and a, a remarkable thing that the actors, good actors, can bring to any project. And I, and I don't have that skill, skill set at all. Um, whereas kind of performance, it can be what you want it to be. Uh, in the same way that these journey films can be what I want them to be. In the same way that maybe, you know, my narrative films, they are what they are because they're, they're outside of any kind of model. And, and without being, you know, you know, without being disingenuous towards actors, I think there's lots of the Bryn actors. They want to be told. They're, they're very underconfident. It's that other great paradox about some Bryn actors are only really in comfortable or in their element or soaring when they're acting. So there's a difference between meeting a person in the street and what they're doing as a performance and what the actor is doing. Yeah. Even if they're both improvising to some extent. Absolutely. And, and give me the person in the street every day. Right. Every day give me the person in the street. Why? Again, without wanting to sound cliched and pretentious, it's more real. The, you, what, you're, what you're finding in them is ostensibly a real thing. And, it, and, those, and we know, we know when it, it, it really, something happens. There's a, there's, a, there's a magical quality. There's an alchemy that, that moves you in a way that... Um, but you've made the a, acting doesn't. But you've made films with actors. Yeah. But you look back on those films now, and you you think they can't do the same thing that your journey films do. No. For for a director that seems to be particularly invested in that encounter and the capturing the the fierceness of a performance, like um, Alan Clark or someone like that. Yeah. Do you th- do you still discount? Well, not discount. I'm not saying you, we'd... I'm definitely not discounting. It's something that I, I, I'm i not so interested in. You know, like Ken Loach, you know, social realism, great performances, incredibly worthy. But for me, uh, I, I'd rather spend the day wandering through Deptford High Street um, and talking to people in Deptford High Street and meeting those very same people that have inspired him to, to go off and produce his, his work. I, I kind of don't need to be told about that stuff because... Yeah. I know that, and having actors kind of reenact it for you feels sometimes slightly uh, patronising. Having made having made a number of uh, feature length fiction films in which you were asking people to do that, what's changed your? You didn't think that when you were making them, obviously. Well, the subject matter is very different, and you know, we, I was talking about poetic reality, both in Ivor and and this filthy earth. With you know, the world that I'm trying to create is is, is a lot more poetic and it's a lot more abstract. It's a lot more kind of metaphysical. And also the, the actors that I've been working with, I cast them because because of them as people. That's the way I choose to do it. I'm asking you though, is it possible to get that reality in fiction to your satisfaction, having done it yourself? Well, yeah, but would you would you argue that I did it uh, successfully? <laughs> Turn the tables off. I think there are some things that you get in the fiction films that you don't get in the uh, non-fiction films, yeah. and there are resources to fiction cinema that would be uh, very difficult to know how you would get to them in in uh, non-fiction cinema. Yeah. You know, in in uh, this filthy earth, you have this it's like layer of the white worm styled effects of lightning storms superimposed on the back of pictures. Yeah. 
or I mean, obviously you could do that in a in a documentary format, but it it makes more sense in that world because it's a fictional world. But to try to try and answer your question is that no, of course, narrative can do that and it does it absolutely brilliantly. Uh, and more recently, in the last ten years, if you think in terms of you know Breaking Bad, The Wire, and the Nick for me is uh, Steven Sonderberg's. You know when they're when they're really. When they when storytellers are given the time and we the audience can invest, you know, the best part of twenty four hours in a story. To go back to your you know, Christian and actors, that yeah, of course they 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 a narrative and it's right up there. But it's something that I don't aspire to because maybe maybe because there are too many other brilliant narrativistic um, filmmakers uh, directors. There's something that you get in a certain number of films that they're attracted to. And extremes of human experience, and in your non-fiction films, you're they're not notably about that kind of thing. Whereas in the fiction films, they are about the extremes of experience. Mm -hmm. So you have you know people living up trees, <laughs> living up trees, or uh, being involved in the you know attacking people with knives, and people are you know confronting death in one way or another. Mm. But the, for you, it's not important to try it. You did it in fiction, but you're not attempting to do the same thing in non-fiction. I'm not attempting to, but I, I think one of the things that underpins a lot of the, the journeying is endurance and stamina. And the journeys aren't easy, you know, pedaling or walking around for a week in um, you know, just a straw bear or whether it be, you know, walking 105 miles in uh, five days. You know, that, that's, that's physically difficult. It's more likely to throw up that reality. Yeah, and it, it's it's more about it's the corporeal, and, and you know again it's the physicality that enables you to transcend sometimes. You know. oh, there's a story of Herzog getting all the actors together and telling them to run a mile, yeah. and then sh shooting the. Yeah, yeah. So it's an equivalent of that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But I, I, and I think that's one thing maybe I didn't talk about a lot in terms of filthy earth, but there was something very very physical about our, our lives up there in Yorkshire for that uh, for those six weeks. You know, it was it was a it was a difficult shoot, but the, without exception, everybody loved it. Everybody loved it. So the physicality, but it's, it's maybe the, those stories that I'm less interested in telling. That um, because I, I'm not a particularly good writer in terms of those stories, um, and you know, the the, the better television gets, uh, whatever television is nowadays, mm. the the you know the less interested I am in in beginning to compete because there are other people that are doing it so brilliantly. Thanks very much to Andrew for generously inviting me to his shed to talk to him. His uh, films are wonderful and you can watch quite a few of them on the BFI player. The first one I saw was Smart Alec, which we talked about at the beginning. It is uh, a wonderful short film. And although we didn't really talk about it, everybody should watch Gallivant because it is a fabulous film. I hope you enjoyed that. Until the next time.